This is the Bible in One Year Express, day 229. How to enjoy God. You and I are created to worship God. But why would God create human beings in order to receive their worship? Is this not, as some suggest, pure vanity? Many years ago, I was helped in my understanding of worship through C.S. Lewis's explanation in his Reflections on the Psalms. He wrote, The most obvious fact about praise strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favourite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare books, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. In other words, worship is the consummation of joy. Our joy is not complete until it is expressed in worship. It's out of his love for you that God created you to worship. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, humankind's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. From Psalm 98 Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvellous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Singing and Music The psalmist calls people to worship God in song and music. Sing to the Lord a new song, burst into jubilant song with music, make music to the Lord. This psalm is full of noise, as the people are asked to celebrate God's goodness in a whole host of different ways. There's a call to sing, shout for joy, play instruments and even applaud in our celebration of God. Shout your praises to God, everybody. Let loose and sing. Strike up the band. Round up an orchestra to play for God. Add on a hundred-voice choir, feature trumpets and big trombones, fill the air with praises to King God, let the sea and its fish give a round of applause, with everything living on earth joining in. This is all a response to what God has done for us. You are called to worship the Lord who is Saviour, King and Judge. As we read this through the lens of Jesus, we can see that this is a prophetic psalm, Jesus is the one at God's right hand who has worked salvation. He has made God's salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. 
There is a joyful anticipation of the universal restoration of all things when the Saviour will come to judge the earth. Then all creation will be restored. As St. Paul puts it, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. This psalm is a growing crescendo of praise from the worshipping community of the people of God to all people and finally to all of creation. Lord, I worship you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for your love and faithfulness. Thank you that I can worship you with joy, jubilant songs, music and shouting. Thank you that I can be confident in the fairness of your judgment. You will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. New Testament from 1 Corinthians 11 In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. In the following directive, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, but when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone's hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Awe and Thanksgiving Paul addresses the issue of honour and propriety in worship, and in particular, he looks at the role and place of women in worship. A huge amount of ink has been spilt discussing what this passage means. Paul's concern was that nothing should cause an offence to the gospel. There is general agreement that much of it is cultural. Few churches today expect women to cover their hair, for example. What is clear is that both men and women were expected to pray and prophesy in services. It's also clear that there is an equality of the sexes and mutual dependence. Neither man nor woman can go it alone or claim priority. Let's quit going through these who's first routines. Next, Paul goes on to discuss the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, as he calls it elsewhere. Eucharistain is a Greek verb meaning to thank. This is probably the earliest account of this element in our services of worship. It's been a vital part of Christian worship for the last 2,000 years, celebrated almost universally by the Church worldwide. Again, there's been a huge amount of discussion about what exactly Paul means. However, it seems to me that from this passage a number of things are clear. First, it's frequent. 
there's an expectation that when they come together in their meetings, the Lord's Supper will take place. Second, it's important. Jesus tells us to do this. The consequences of not doing it properly are very serious. Examine your motives, test your heart, come to the meal in holy awe. Third, it is proclamation. It's one of the ways in which you proclaim the gospel. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Fourth, it involves both remembering Jesus and recognizing the body of the Lord. Expect to encounter Jesus as you receive the bread and wine. Fifth, it is a participation in Christ's body and blood. The Greek word used here is koinonia, which can also mean sharing or fellowship. It's a way for us to receive and share in the benefits of Jesus' death. Sixth, it's a form of thanksgiving. We drink from the cup of thanksgiving. Seventh, it's an expression of unity. Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, but we all partake of the one loaf. One of the great tragedies in church history is the way in which this great expression of unity has become a cause of division. Eighth, it anticipates the Lord's return. You are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. The bread and the wine are the body and blood of Jesus. This is one of the ways in which we experience his presence today. What exactly this means, of course, has been subject of great speculation, debate and controversy. One approach might perhaps be simply to accept it as a mystery and not go behind scripture and speculate too much about how exactly it works. Lord, help me to worship you in a way that is right and appropriate and pleases you. Help me to focus on Jesus. Help me to find my true purpose in worshipping you and enjoying you forever. Old Testament from 2 Chronicles 7-9 to If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Integrity and Passion Solomon succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord. He glorified God through what he carried out. The chronicler focuses his account on the reigns of David and Solomon around the building of the place to worship God, the temple in Jerusalem. For him, virtually everything else in their reigns pales into insignificance. They built the place of worship and God blessed them richly. Solomon's fame spread, as we read in chapters 8 and 9. The Queen of Sheba, probably the modern-day Yemen, came to visit and was so astonished by what she saw that she herself praised the Lord. Interestingly, in the light of the New Testament passage about women, no question is raised about a female monarch ruling a country. Solomon's splendor was great. After Solomon had built the temple, the Lord appeared to him and said, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This verse is justly famous, and it is often used as a template for worship and prayer. In it, we see the conditions for integrity in our worship. There are also the conditions necessary for revival. In the light of COVID-19, it's pertinent to note that the immediate context was the possibility of a pandemic, a plague. We see in this verse that we need to do four things. First, humble ourselves. Second, pray. Third, seek God's face. Fourth, turn from our wicked ways. Then God promises that he will do three things. First, hear from heaven. Second, forgive our sin. Third, heal our land. 
Lord, today I want to humble myself and pray and seek your face and repent of my sins. I pray that you would hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land. May we glorify you and enjoy you forever. Pippa adds, 2 Chronicles 8 verse 11 says, My wife must not live in the palace of King David of Israel, because the places the Ark of the Lord has entered are holy. I'm assuming it's because Pharaoh's daughter didn't worship God, rather than any other reason that she couldn't live there.